0: Welcome to Working History, a podcast on the New Books Network channel. New books in the American South. Working History is a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Learn more and become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today I'm speaking with Ismael Garcia Colon, associate professor of anthropology at the City University of New York College of Staten Island. We're discussing his new book, Colonial Migrants at the Heart of Empire. Puerto Rican Workers on U.S. Farms, published by the University of California Press. Ismael Garcia Colon, welcome to Working History. Thank you for the invitation. Of course, my pleasure. One of the main themes that your book engages with is the multiple challenges faced by Puerto Rican farm workers in the United States because of their status as both U.S. citizens and, as you discuss, perceived, quote-unquote, others. To start us off, could you give our listeners a very quick primer, if you will, on how Puerto Rico came to be a U.S. colonial territory and how its residents then were ultimately granted U.S. citizenship?
1: Yes. Uh, Puerto Rico became part of the United States uh, in 1898 as a result of the Spanish-American War. Some people call it the Spanish-Cuban-American War. hmm so the United States invaded uh, Puerto Rico, and as a result of this war, the United States became an empire. Puerto Ricans initially were not granted uh, U.S. citizenship. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was this fear that people of African heritage will be part of, uh, will become part of the United States nation. So the Congress and the president they, they, they didn't want to grant uh, citizenship. In uh, 1984, the U.S. Supreme Court declared Puerto Ricans national. Mm-hmm. Uh, that what it meant was that they were subjects of the United States, but not citizens. Part of the United States for basically domestic purposes. Mm-hmm. And this happened when Puerto Ricans began to migrate to continental United States, right? That there was this question of what are we going to do with these new colonial subjects that we just acquired? And what is going to be the status of them? So initially, they were granted this national uh, status. And in 1917, uh, some people... St- Argued that uh, the United States feared a German invasion of the island. Other people argued that the United States wanted to maintain Puerto Rico or Puerto Ricans as loyal subjects. Mm -hmm. And that was the, the, or those were the reasons why Puerto Ricans became U.S. citizens. But in 1917, Puerto Ricans became naturalized. Uh Okay. not native-born mm-hmm. citizens. That happened until 1941 uh, when they were included in the Immigration Act of 1940. And it wasn't until 1948 that Congress really clarified this status because some people that uh, were living out of the United States and out of Puerto Rico, they were basically stateless. Mm-hmm. And in 1948, Congress then clarifies that Puerto Ricans are native-born
0: Okay. Sim- okay. So it, with that 1940-1941 shift um, from naturalized to native-born, was that also a product of the wartime crisis that was starting in that moment?
1: Yes. Okay. And the, the fear, again that you needed to maintain uh, these colonial subjects loyal mm-hmm. To, mm-hmm. to the nation mm-hmm. was one of the, the, the reasons why they granted or they extended mm-hmm. right, the, mm-hmm. the citizenship of Puerto Ricans. But it was also the lobby of the local colonial government with okay. the federal agencies uh-huh. uh, trying to uh, give, them, give Puerto Ricans more uh, rights mm-hmm. within the U.S. nation.
0: Okay. That's interesting. When we think of Southern labor history, which this podcast focuses on, why is it important for us to, in your opinion, widen our circle to include places like Puerto Rico that might be seen as on the periphery of the U.S. South or of the global South even um, geographically?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, first, there has been a long time connection uh, between Puerto Rico and the southern part of the of the United States. Mm-hmm. This is since Spanish colonial times. From Puerto Rico, some expeditions during the colonial times were launched to what is now the United States, and Puerto Ricans migrated to places like in Florida, Ibor City, mm-hmm. to, to work in the tobacco in Ibor City, uh, for example, in the in the nineteenth century, mm-hmm. uh, in the earliest. Uh, 20th century, the first Puerto Ricans recruited by the United States Employment Service during the first war, they were sent to war-related industries Mm. in the South, uh, Mm -hmm. Kansas, North Carolina, Louisiana, and uh, many died there as a result of the Spanish flu Mm. in 1918.
0: Which seems suddenly relevant, right, in the moment that we're living in, yeah.
1: Yes. And after the mid-20th century, farm workers that migrated without contracts, without any kind of contract between the government of Puerto Rico and farmers, they will first travel to Florida. Mm-hmm. And from Florida, track all the, they will trek north uh, all the eastern seaboard, uh, working in the harvests.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so basically what, what you're saying is that Puerto Rico and Puerto Rican workers have really been an integral part of Southern labor history right from the very beginning. So it makes sense to include the, include them sort of in our, in our, in our scope of, of consideration. So Mm -hmm. let's, um, let's really dive into your book a bit more and, you know kind of fast forward a little bit from what you're talking about in terms of the Spanish-American War and then into 1917 and um but not so far beyond when when Puerto Rican citizens became official citizens if you will of the United States and your book largely looks at the post World War II period. So can we talk a little bit about and can you tell us what and you you briefly just mentioned this before but what was the farm labor migration to the U.S. like up to this time, so sort of in the pre-World War II period, and how were or were not, as the case may be, Puerto Rican workers, Puerto Rican farm workers specifically part of this mix? Mm -hmm.
1: Well, uh, as soon as Puerto Rico became part of the United States, labor recruited landed in Puerto Rico Mm -hmm. uh, seeking Puerto Rican uh, labor. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, initially in 1899 uh, labor recruiters from hawaii hawaii was already part of the united states and the sugar company sent recruiters to puerto rico Mm. for the basically the the, this uh the sugar plantation Mm -hmm. and it was because first the japanese had created a monopoly of labor and they wanted to break that monopoly and secondly because of the Chinese Mm -hmm. Exclusionary Act. So the uh, sugar planters were recruiting Puerto Ricans and and from other places uh, around the world. Mm -hmm. So this is when Puerto Ricans are nationals, U.S. companies are recruiting them to Hawaii, but also U.S. sugar companies in Cuba, Mm. uh, Dominican Republic, Mm -hmm and in some cases, and some plantations in, in Mexico. When they become uh, citizens, they are sent to the south to these uh, war-related industries. Mm-hmm. And in the 1920s, there's this recruitment of Puerto Ricans to Arizona mm-hmm. and uh, for the cotton plantations. Uh, but the problem was that they were already citizens. Mm-hmm. And Uh, they were promised things that were not true. And when they got there and they found the reality, they began to escape and leave the plantations for the cities. And Mm -hmm. for the cotton planters, that was a disaster. And for them, since then, then Puerto Ricans were uh, not a good uh, source of labor. Sure. Uh, They began to, to complain by... 1928 in the uh, in the hearings on immigration in the Western Hemisphere, farmers feared that the United States would restrict Mexican migration and that they would use Puerto Ricans and Filipinos. And so the farm uh, lobby began to uh, basically argue against Puerto Ricans because they were not deportable Mexicans could be sent back if they were troubled. Puerto Ricans will stay and become country charges. Mm-hmm. So during the Depression, so uh, Puerto Rican labor was not basically used, and the, there are no recruiters to Puerto Rico. So in 1941, you have the Mexican uh, bracero program, you have the, also the United States recruiting West Indians to work in farms, but they are not recruiting Puerto Ricans. And the local colonial government is governor at the time, uh, Rex for Jig Togwell, one of the most radical New Dealers.
0: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Togwell uh, is loving the Office of Territory for the use of Puerto Ricans, but the farmers didn't want them. Mm-hmm. And since the farmers were in the boards of the Manpower Administration, they were able to block uh, Puerto Ricans. And Puerto Ricans were recruited, but at, to a lesser extent in, in manufacturing and the manufacturing sector mm-hmm. and not in farm labor. The, the recruitment of Puerto Rican in farm labor in large quantities uh, to con- continental United States began in the post-war years. In 1945, 1946, labor recruiters began to arrive in Puerto Rico and they uh, were bringing workers. But sometimes they would promise salaries that were not true. Mm-hmm. The conditions that they were offered were not uh, adequate for the workers. And these workers began to complain to the local government in Puerto Rico. The, the, the governor of Puerto Rico then sent its secretary of labor fernando sierra verdecía to investigate this situation and they f- they found uh, you know that it was true that uh, labor recruiters were abusing uh, many workers mm-hmm. and the government of puerto rico then in 1947 actually 19- when the mexican bracero program is suspended temporarily mm-hmm. the government of puerto rico then issues to laws one law is law 89 that restrict labor recruitment in Puerto Rico any labor recruiter had to be approved by the government of Puerto Rico and law 25 that created the bureau of employment and, Migra- and migration mm-hmm. basically the local us uh, kind of employment service the local employment service in the islands and with that, the government then creates this for this farm labor uh, program.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, how did that impact farm labor migration to the United States? Once those laws were passed, did it facilitate more migration or less, or did it just manage it in a different way?
1: Well, it facilitated migration from Puerto Rico to the Northeast. Okay, because actually, the government of Puerto Rico fear the Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. South.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And they basically stated we are not going to send these workers to the south, not even Florida. Okay. And so the Puerto Rican migration to farm labor happens mostly to the Northeast, New Jersey and Southern New Jersey still to the from the late 1940s to the present, the center of Puerto Rican farm labor migration. So with that, what happened was that British West Indian farm labor migration gets restricted Mm -hmm. in in the Northeast of the United States because of Puerto Rican migration. In 1949, uh, the Secretary of Labor, uh, Fernando Sierra Bedecia, reached an agreement with Robert Goodwin, the director of the U.S. Employment Service, to consider Puerto Rican domestic workers Uh and grant Puerto Rican preference over what they call guest workers.
0: Okay. The farm workers themselves and their experiences are really central to the story that you tell in the book. And so could you, now that we have this framework of understanding the structure around, you know, how these how these workers are coming to the United States. Could you walk us through what life was like for Puerto Rican farm workers in in the US? What sorts of work were they doing? You said they were coming to the northeast largely. So what kinds of work were they doing? What were the conditions in which they labored? And, you know, anything else that you could tell us about their day to day lives? As you said, domestic workers from what was still in many ways considered a colonial outpost, if you will.
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So uh, Puerto Ricans, because they were migrant uh, laborers, they wanted to work as many hours as they could to, so they could send money to their families. Mm-hmm. So most of them, to the present time, they work seven days a week. Mm-hmm. Still, uh, Puerto Rican uh, farm workers, they work uh, in a day from say 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., 12 hours a day, especially when there's the harvest is, inten- is very intense. Mm-hmm. And they will work until Sunday, maybe Sunday, until 1 p.m. Mm-hmm. And they uh, usually work in uh, fruits and vegetables, mm-hmm. but also in tobacco. And this depended in the region, right? You mm-hmm. have in southern New Jersey workers, in the vegetable harvest, also blue, uh, picking up blueberries mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In, nor- in the northern part of New York, you have workers picking up apples. Mm-hmm. In the Connecticut River Valley, you had a lot of uh, Puerto Rican uh, workers in the, uh, in the tobacco farms. Mm. Puerto Ricans that work in the tobacco farms in Puerto Rico will migrate to tab- tobacco farms in the Connecticut River uh, Valley. Mm-hmm. It, it really depended on the region. Like mm-hmm. in, in Long Island, in Eastern Long Island, you have them harvesting potatoes. And, you know, they, this this is a really intensive work sometimes bending their backs mm-hmm. of most of the time, most of the day carrying uh, heavy loads of produce. But most of them did this because they wanted to improve their lives,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: they tell me that they wanted, to, they were looking for a uh, buen ambiente, meaning a good environment, a, a good life, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so what I cover in my book is is these feelings of hope that they had, mm-hmm. um, uh, And this hope of improving their life was what was driving them to migrate seasonally Many of them had this idea that they will migrate, that is, they will get money, uh, save money, and will be able to bring the, their families. And many did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, many moved from the farms to the cities. Many kept moving back and forth and building uh, their houses, buying land in Puerto Rico, opening mm-hmm. uh, small stores. But at the same time, they you know that they were working in this all the time they they felt like many of them felt felt like living in a prison
0: mm.
1: and this is uh, this is a topic that is recurrent in the interviews that i did mm-hmm. and actually in the documents and newspapers of uh, since the 1940s to through the 1980s that the labor camps were like a prison for farm workers, and that they felt estranged from, you know, from Puerto Rico, right? Mm-hmm. That they mm-hmm. they speak the language. Some of them were without any families or friends. So this this dialected be- between the hope and the estrangement what shaped their experience in uh, U.S. farm uh, labor.
0: Right. Looking at their experiences from a worker management perspective, what were relations like between the farm workers and the farm owners and operators? Is it sort of a classic you know, labor management struggle or was it different?
1: You know, it, there, there's positive there's positive and negative uh, sure. sides of uh-huh. this story. Yeah. Uh, in, in the case of farmers, it was Sometimes a headache to deal with Puerto Ricans because they they will leave their job without finishing the contract,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: breaking their their contracts. But at the same time, in the documentation that I have found, there are many many incidents of wage wage theft and complaints mm-hmm. by you know by workers. So the the workers in, there is it was common for workers to complain about abusive relations with the farmers, uh, the, the, the farmers abusing them, not providing them adequate living places or uh, worker conditions that were acceptable. Mm-hmm. But in the other side, you know, I, I was able to interview workers in southern New Jersey that were migrating to the same farm that they, their parents or grandparents Migrated in the 1950s. That's interesting. Wow. Uh, so, and I asked uh, other farmers, and I said, "How do you get your workers?" Where well, because my my father used to bring them from this area in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. So that you know, there there are these long lasting relationships, mm-hmm. and some and some uh, work, workers will, will say, "Oh, because my boss he has sent their their children to." Puerto Rico to spend the summer with my children hmm. or the farmer uh, speaks Spanish mm-hmm. uh, and so the, you know they have this bonds has been been created between uh, farmers and, and farm workers that mm-hmm. in a way are paternalistic, right because sure. the farmers make sure to man- maintain these uh, sources of labor. <laughs>
0: So, and and this seems very different, (laughs) very different in a lot of ways from other groups of farm laborers that come to the United States, um, particularly guest workers who don't have, it seems, a a similar degree of agency that Puerto Rican workers do by virtue of the fact that they are deportable. Is that right? Uh, Yes. Yeah. Definitely.
1: Uh, What scholars, Nicolas de Genova uh, and Natalie uh, Potts, argue is that in, in in the United States, there's this deportation regime, mm-hmm. and th- this deportation regime also shapes the lives of U.S. citizens. So in the case of Puerto Ricans, this deportation regime shaped uh, the relationship to farm labor, Sometimes I found this letter from uh, the attorney general uh, of Pennsylvania in the 1950s complaining about the fact that Puerto Ricans would stay after the harvest. Mm-hmm. Other, in other instances, farmers or the directors of uh, labor camps will complain that Puerto Ricans could not be deported when they misbehave, mm-hmm. when they complain about the labor conditions. And they will say it clearly, you know, that they will prefer, for example, the British West, West Indians because they could be uh, deported and they didn't want Puerto Rican farm workers. So Puerto Ricans were desirable when immigration restrictions were and still are imposed Mm -hmm. on guest workers. And they were undesirable when the country opened uh, the doors to guess workers.
0: <laughs> so it's, it's sort of a double edged sword, right? That, you yes. know, on one hand, they're desired. On the other hand, they're not. <laughs> OK, yes. so that's that's all very, very interesting. Before we wrap up for today, given the particular moment that we're in and the conversations around immigration policies that we're currently having, what do you see as the uh, as an important takeaway or takeaways from the story that you tell in your book?
1: One thing is that if we wanted to understand the effects of uh, open-border policies, the case of Puerto-, of Puerto Ricans in farm labor is a good way to understand the dynamics of having open-border uh, policies. Another aspect is that, unlike Natives nativists argue, it's not the immigrants who we should blame Uh, For the the situation of citizens, it's Mm -hmm. actually elected officials and agribusinesses, Mm -hmm. right, that don't allow workers to organize, to have labor unions, to have decent labor conditions, to have access to health care and a minimum wage in farm labor.
0: That's definitely giving us something to to think about. And hopefully our listeners will, will pick up a copy of your book, which, which was just published last month. Am I right? So yes. it's, it's very recent, but it's available. So thank you for taking the time to join us on this episode of Working History to discuss it.
1: Thank you again for the invitation.
0: Thanks again to Ismael Garcia Colon for joining us to discuss his book, Colonial Migrants at the Heart of Empire. And thank you for listening to this episode of Working History, a podcast on the New Books Network produced by the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member of SLSA online at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History.